0: is an Odyssey original
1: This is KDEX in Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm
0: Chris S and today for Charles Feldman. Electric vehicles could soon dominate the roads and freeways here in Southern California. But there are safety concerns about their batteries. Tesla battery caught fire in the Sacramento area last week and apparently for no reason. Hyundai had an EV recall back in 2021 after reports of battery fires we will go in-depth into EV batteries. Former President Donald Trump may have a Republican primary challenger very soon. We'll tell you who. And The FBI searches for more classified documents connected to President Biden. Does today's search uh, show the president still has
1: more of them? Locked away somewhere? The Federal Reserve raised a key interest rate again as it looks to fight inflation. We're going to go in-depth on whether it's going to work and how much of an impact it will have on regular people like you and me. What if we could bring back extinct animals, as if we had learned nothing from Jurassic Park? Would it be cool to see a woolly mammoth walking around? And this is no fantasy. Scientists are actually working to bring back an animal not seen alive on Earth in centuries. I saw a woolly animal... Walking around outside or out? Well, I'm kidding. Oh, that was me. Yeah. Was you. Okay. Yeah. We'll
0: start with electric vehicles and uh, the battery problems. Russ Rader, Senior Vice President of Communications with the Insurance Institute of, for Highway Safety. Russ, thanks for taking some time for us today. We had that Tesla battery fire up north. It's not the first time this has happened. Is there concern in the automotive world about the safety of these EV batteries? Well,
2: uh, hi there, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um it's important to know that um, fires of any kind, whether it's uh, in an electric vehicle or in a conventional gas-powered vehicle, are pretty rare, and that continues to be the case today. In fact, our, our Highway Loss Data Institute uh, that's part of the uh, of IIHS monitors and analyzes insurance claims uh, data almost in, in real time, and they look carefully at uh, fires. And so far, we have not seen that electric vehicles are more prone to fire than conventional gas-powered vehicles. Now, keep in mind that we're still talking about very small numbers because despite the sales increases of EVs, there still aren't that many out there. But so far, we haven't seen an increased risk.
1: Now, in this case, we're you know we've been hearing a lot about uh, Tesla's re- recently. Are these uh, when the fires do happen? Is it a problem with Tesla, or is it a problem with the battery technology itself?
2: Well, the batteries themselves can definitely be a problem in a fire, and that's because you can get uh, what's called a, a thermal event where the fire spreads rapidly uh, in the in the in the uh, in the vehicle across the the, the batteries. And so it is a problem when a fire occurs, uh, but it can also be a problem in a conventional vehicle when there is a a gasoline fire. So uh, you want to avoid a fire if you can. And thankfully uh, these fires are extremely uncommon.
0: Well, Russ, what should people know if they have an EV might have some concerns? Is is there any precautionary things they can do or things they should look for?
2: Well, um, keeping a, Looking at this uh, in the in the uh, bigger picture, with uh, the risk in with a conventional vehicle typically being higher than an EV, it's important to know that fire risk increases as a vehicle ages. So if the vehicle is prone to fires. Uh, it's most likely to happen after about five or six years that the vehicle is uh, on the road. We do a report every spring where we report to the government uh, the fire data that we get from insurance claims. And the government uh, often uses that uh, data to initiate investigations if a vehicle has a higher than uh, normal uh, fire rate. rate. Uh, And so, Sometimes those investigations also lead to recalls. So it's really important, whether you have an EV or a gas-powered vehicle, to make sure that you always check periodically to see if your vehicle has been recalled. And that's very easy to do by plugging in the vehicle identification number on the government's website at NHTSA.gov. And that's especially uh, important with an older vehicle that is more prone to fire because you may not get the recall notice when the recall occurs.
1: All right. Thank you so much, uh, Russ Rader, Senior Vice President of Communications with the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety.
0: Right now, though, former President Trump could have a Republican challenger very soon. Multiple reports say that former South Carolina governor and former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, will enter the presidential race. She could be the first of many Republicans, or maybe the only one. Who knows? Tim Rosales is a Republican strategist and president and CEO of the Rosales-Johnson Agency. Tim, thanks for taking some time to talk with us today. Uh, Recently, Ron DeSantis who's not even in the race gotten hammered by the former president. That makes me think that maybe before this race even begins how much abuse or before she even possibly jumps into the race, how much abuse might Nikki Haley expect from the former president?
3: Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, well, I, I would anticipate there will be some, uh, arrow, uh, how sharp that arrow is, uh, who knows to be slung by the former president at, uh, his former ambassador, but, uh, uh you know, this is this is politics. It's uh, it's, it's major league politics for the highest uh, and most important office uh, in the entire world. And so it gets pretty competitive, even amongst those, uh, you know, in their own party.
1: This is early in the game uh, yet, but there does appear to be something moving because everybody's talking about Ron DeSantis. And, and they say it's uh, that that uh, Mr. DeSantis is, appears to be playing the long game. Uh, but he will more than likely jump into the race only because his poll numbers uh, give him the strength to do that. And he would be, they say, a fool not to get into the race. But he's he's waiting out. He seems to be waiting out to see where these investigations and criminal indictments of Mr. Trump are going to go. But if we are seeing Nikki Haley already announcing uh, or will announce, planning to announce to get into the race, and there might be some other words uh, to join her, is there some internal polling? in the Republican Party that shows that while Trump is indeed a, a standard bearer of the party, he does have a lot of support still. Uh, there are some who maybe are growing tired of his playing the same old hits over and over again.
3: You're absolutely right. And yes, there is. And uh, that says, you know, that, that President Trump is still popular uh, amongst Republicans. But that doesn't mean that that Popularity translates into voting for him in 2024 for president. Um, he may not be their particular flavor of ice cream for for the upcoming election. Uh, you know, although they still like uh, and and support President Trump, uh, it may be time. And, and I think that what Republicans uh, across the country are asking themselves is it is it time uh, for for someone new, uh, a different face. Uh, to to lead the the party and even and, and lead the country. Um, you know, let's face it, Joe Biden is not a fresh face uh, in the Democratic Party either. Uh, and he came out of uh, a very contested uh, primary uh, and then uh, defeated President Trump to win to win that uh, uh, the presidency. So I think both parties are asking themselves the same question right right now, or at least members of both parties at this point. Um, certainly, President Biden uh, has to make that decision whether or not he's going to run again. Uh, President Trump seems to be you know uh, keen on on running again, uh, but voters may have a different take on that.
0: Well, Nikki Haley has a proven record. Uh, as a leader, as a governor, she's more of a traditional republican, a mainstream Republican. Can she prove to be a tough opponent for for Donald Trump?
3: Oh, I think absolutely. I mean she presents a number of challenges uh, I think, for President Trump, as does Ron DeSantis, as does you know a number of of candidates um Certainly, one would say that you know more candidates that jump in, the better it is for President Trump who has you know an established base, but but that still remains to be seen. We're still a little bit away from uh, from primary races, uh, pro- uh, thirteen months away from the primary in California, uh, which uh, you know is is a long time, but not that long. Uh, so I think uh, Nikki Haley, in terms, you know, she's a woman. Uh, she's been a successful governor. She's got foreign policy experience. Uh, she has. Uh, You know, she's she's dynamic. She she is excellent on the stump, an excellent campaigner, uh, has won tough elections before uh, and can appeal to, uh, you know, to Republicans, but also to those, uh, you know, middle of the road voters and even some Democratic voters, you know, in a general election. Uh, And so I think she she is a a, a, would be a very formidable opponent, uh, not only in in a Republican primary, but in the general election.
1: Uh, very quickly, um, as as some people are are getting tired, they say of uh Trump's constantly re- relitigating 2020 over again, and uh, that's what is tiring them out. But if these Republican challengers get in the race and they want to they want to beat him, are they going to have to play the Trumpy game, or are they really going to have to be something different than Trump? In other words, can can they beat Trump without relitigating 2020, or are they going to need to chart a different path?
3: I think they're going to need to chart a different path because, you know, one of the biggest mistakes people make in campaigns is running the last campaign uh, and, you know, not realizing that the electorate and the mood of the country or the mood of the voters uh, in any particular race Uh, In any particular campaign is different than the one that was, you know, just run. And so, I think that anyone that goes back to 2022 to 2020 in the presidential uh, cycle, even 20, you know, 16, and looking at those, uh, you know, for the future would be a huge mistake uh, because you really need to look at okay, where is the country and where are voters going to be in 2024? We've got uh, we've got new issues. We've got an economy that's different. We've got China that's, uh, you know, making moves on the international stage. uh, The Russia-Ukraine conflict. A A lot of different things that are that are out there uh, that uh, uh, change that environment uh, from 2020. uh, In addition to, you know, the uh, I I think the patience and tolerance to what voters have uh, for certain types of rhetoric.
1: All right. Thank you so much, uh, Tim Rosales, Republican strategist and president, CEO of the Rosales Johnson Agency. Coming up, the Federal Reserve
0: raises a key interest rate again. We'll look into whether it'll help slow down inflation even more. And scientists working to bring back a long extinct animal will tell you how and which one.
1: Right now, though, the FBI searched another home in Delaware belonging to President Biden. Agents were uh, looking for more classified documents, but the president's attorney said nothing was found there. And the whole search for missing classified documents uh, raises a lot of questions, even though these uh, searches are done uh, with the uh, full welcome and cooperation of the Biden team, but there are still questions about, you know, uh, classified documents in general. Brian Greer is a former CIA attorney, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, You know, there are a couple of issues here as we talk about uh, classified documents found at the homes of uh, former presidents, former politicians, and it appears to be that they are getting packed up, you know, when they get out of office. Or maybe there are too many classified documents left lying around, or are we maybe classifying more documents than need to be classified
4: yeah there's a lot of theories out there floating around mine is actually sort of the simplest one which is this is really a function of the white house environment where <clears throat> normally with classified information you want a very segregated environment between the unclassified world and the classified world so at the cia where i worked pretty much everything is classified and the entire facility is treated like a skiff except for the common areas other agencies like commerce Almost everything is unclassified, but they might have a classified skiff down in the basement where they go. In those kind of environments, it's easier to avoid having mishandling of classified records because they don't get mixed in with unclassified stuff. At the White House, you have a very intermingled environment, which makes it very accident prone. You've got the Oval Office and the Vice President's Office, which are considered skiffs, so they can have classified discussions and classified documents. But obviously, as everyone knows, there's a ton of unclassified activity going on there. And so when you have that intermingled environment, it makes accidents like this much more probable, combined with the fact that these transitions are chaotic and they're working until the last minute. And then finally, combined with the fact that presidents have a lot of personal materials they want to take home, whereas when I left the CIA, I had like a little tiny middle envelope of personal stuff. To <laughs> you take had,
1: had the little cardboard
0: box. Mm. <laughs> I can't help but think, and I don't know if you agree with me on this or not, that a lot of people think that it's almost a certainty that there's going to be more documents found, be it by a you know president, a vice president, a senator, congressperson, or, or a, a senior staff member uh, who works with somebody. Uh, there's more out there.
4: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear more former presidents. I mean, when this first happened, I I assumed there would be more and more um it is again, that's a function of what I talked about and just the the practical reality that these senior political officials, whether they be president or vice president, cabinet secretary, don't have a lot of background in handling classified information and their staffs don't always either. And they they still the staffs are trained appropriately, they try to do their best, but in the in the rush of business to serve these principles, mistakes are more likely to happen than than they are with a rank and file employee. So
1: do you think in order to kind of keep this from happening again or keep this from continuing to happen, uh, some changes perhaps need to be made in that uh, people who are packing up these classified documents when politicians leave office maybe need to have some more training or maybe some other personnel who specialize in this need to be brought in when uh, paperwork is uh, packed up. Would that help?
4: Yeah, I think I agree with both those. The training would help more, having a more orderly process that involves screening, I mean, you've still got to get the president and vice president out of the office at 1159 a.m., uh, so that's still a problem. But why not have, and I think they have this, but utilize an off-site government facility that's still secure, that's still a skiff, but push all their, pres- their personal papers there and allow an orderly process where someone can screen them. The last thing people have mentioned I think is a good idea is they are moving to more having more digital records, classified records, given to the president and vice president so that they don't print them, that that's done with the PDB under Obama. Maybe they should look to do that more for other classified documents as well.
0: You know, not that we're making light of it, but but we're hearing of so many documents being found in so many different locations now, presidents, vice presidents. Um, I, I can't help but wonder if, if maybe what's being lost a little bit in the mix from all of this is the true danger that some people might be in because of what is in those documents if they end up in the wrong hands.
4: Yeah, I agree with that. You know, myself and others, when this all started happening, pointed out this mishandling happens with some frequency, but I think that's been misunderstood. That doesn't mean it's not a big deal, right? To your point, it's still, uh, what it really means is accidents happen and we typically don't treat them criminally. The Justice Department does not prosecute every accidental mishandling of classified records. Um, so that's important to understand, and that's why I think Biden ultimately won't be handled criminally. But it's still a big deal from a mass security perspective. A lower-level employee who did what Biden did would, would probably lose their clearance in their job. Even, you know They would need to be personally tied to it. We still don't know if Biden personally moved those records as opposed to some staffer, but certainly the staffer who moved them would have their clearance removed if uh, they would lose it if they... Um, Did this? So the point is, it's still a big deal from national security's perspective, because we still don't know who accessed the records. In absence of knowing, the intelligence community is gonna assume the worst and potentially pull back a source or a method. Um, Finally, it it looks bad, (laughs) right? To uh, we have not just individual sources overseas, but foreign governments who look to us to keep their secrets. This just being in the news like this is harmful in and of itself, because they'll be less likely to trust us.
1: All right. Thank you so much, uh, Brian uh, Greer, a former CIA attorney. You're listening to KNX in depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Chris Sedens. The Federal Reserve cannot quit raising a key interest uh, rates. It boosted the rate again today by a quarter of a percentage point. It is the eighth rate hike since last March.
0: Yeah, this is a smaller increase than uh, before. As the Fed looks to a further cool down inflation, Alexander Tomich is a associate dean and economist at Boston College. He talks. Uh, he joins us now to talk more about this, Alexander. Thank you, first of all. So, how much will this latest increase in impact regular people like you, me, and and Rob. Will we we all notice
5: this? Uh, I honestly don't think so. I I really do not. I mean, Fed is moderating the increases, you know, and and then how much you will feel it, it just depends how much you are exposed to any kind of adjustable rate debt. So if you have a lot of credit card debt, if you have adjustable rate mortgage, you might see some, uh, big. you know, you, you might see some increase but I don't think it will be anything dramatic.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I'm no financial expert. Uh, and that's what you're here for. But I know that when the interest rates started coming down, I started to prioritize, you know, paying down credit card debt because that was, you know, that's variable interest. Uh, I think our mortgage is locked in. So we're OK there. But uh, it's it's not just these interest rate hikes that we, we've got to worry about. We are still on the way towards a showdown between uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats over the debt ceiling. And if we happen to go over the cliff on that and breach that debt ceiling, it is a good idea idea for people like me to like you know if you can pay off all your credit cards and get them done get them out of the way because if you don't you're going to be in trouble once once the worst of the worst happens is that uh is that a safe way to do things
5: so let's let me be clear comparing the interest rate hikes and the possible default uh over the congressional antics surrounding Uh, That ceiling is like comparing apples and nuclear bombs, (laughs) you know, one is considerably (laughs) worse than the other. So if you know, so in the inflationary times, the two things that you want to do, you want to load up on fixed rate debt and you want to avoid getting into variable rate debt. So, you know, if we expect inflation to continue rising, it might even make sense to take a personal loan at the fixed rate and pay off the credit cards, right? Uh, so that's that's the inflation game. If the people in Congress uh, really do take the country over the cliff, then your credit cards will be the least of your problems.
4: Hmm.
0: Quarter of a point raise. Were you surprised the increase wasn't higher than that?
5: No. I I was actually not surprised uh, because Fed has been pretty happy with uh, the inflation slowing down. And at the same time, Fed has, you know, Fed is not doing this blindly. They are actually paying attention to the economy. We do see some employment cost indexes slowing down, meaning wages are not rising as fast. We do see some softness in the consumer side. So they are really worried about, you know, having a hard landing. So they are trying to balance. Uh so I'm not surprised that they slowed down. I expect they will probably if everything continues the way it is now, I expect that they will probably start pausing once we get to five, five point twenty-five. So if everything continues the way it was for the last six months, a year, you know, these gradual decreases in inflation, I would say two more quarter percent hikes and then pause. But if inflation starts rearing up again, then it will be a much, uh, much, much different calculus.
1: Yeah, and and how do you factor in? There are some areas of the economy where we seem to be doing better better than uh, people thought we would be, given the the circumstances. Even though we have in uh, inflation, uh, employment situation is is okay. Uh, so, with the smaller increase, is the Fed maybe like like you say maybe thinking about? Only a couple more of these. We'll we'll take a pause and see how we're doing. Is there a possibility that we might recover so strongly that we might go back to lowering those interest rates again, uh, say, in the next uh, two, three or four years?
5: You know, two, three or four years is an awfully long time uh, because, you know, in this world, things are beginning to happen really, really fast. So let me preface everything by saying barring something hugely surprising like the default or another conflict, for example, with China or another pandemic, okay? Which, you know, if you learned anything, we learned to say, maybe it could happen. So barring anything unusual, I would say that probably within two to three years, Fed might get inflation closer to 2%. uh, And at that point, they would probably start bringing down the the interest rates. Of course, Fed is constantly monitoring the situation. If they see uh, unemployment, picking up uh, if they see GDP really, really slowing down and actually going below the potential GDP. Because right now we are overheating. If they figure out we are going in the opposite direction and going below the potential GDP, they definitely would uh, actually start uh, reducing rates. Because right now they are doing a tough balancing act, which is bring down the inflation without sending economy into a serious recession. Mm. And so far, they're actually doing better than I think most people expected when they started uh, on on this path.
1: Oh, so there you go. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, not quite at hair on fire level yet. Uh, Alexander uh, Tomic, Associate Dean <laughs> and Economist at uh, Boston College.
0: Well, most of you probably have seen the movie Jurassic Park. Scientists created the modern-day dinosaurs
1: using old DNA and gene splicing. That was fiction, though. But it might soon be a documentary, because reality is catching up. Scientists now using ancient DNA to try to recreate a new dodo bird, which has been extinct since the 1600s. (laughs) And if it works, we will have the dodo bird 2.0 with the... Better camera, a slightly different version. Uh, Ben Lamb is CEO, co-founder of Colossal Biosciences, which is running this project. And uh, Beth Shapiro, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz. Uh, She's the lead uh, paleogeneticist at uh, Colossal. Thank you both for uh, joining us today. So the first question I want to ask is, as you guys are working on this, uh, did did we learn nothing from Jurassic Park? Are, are, we we gonna have, help. are we going to have a building-sized dodo bird knocking cars off the roads?
6: No, I mean, Jurassic Park, like a lot of science fiction movies, are fake. Uh, You cannot bring back dinosaurs, you know, but what you can do is you can use a lot of these incredible genetic engineering technologies to bring back extinct genes and build proxy species to bring back biodiversity that was removed from the planet at the hand of man. And that's something that we're really, really passionate about is doing that as well as developing those tools and technologies for conservation.
0: Beth, what can we expect and how difficult is this?
7: Oh, it's pretty hard. I mean, these are technologies that are currently under development for for if we think about bringing back extinct species most people think about mammoths right and i think about cloning like the process that brought us dolly the sheep what is true though is that we can't use this same process for birds and What's really exciting to me about that about this investment from Colossal is that these technologies that allow us to tweak the DNA sequences of living pe- living species are now going to be developed for birds. This means not only can we get something dodo-like back, but we can also use these tools to try to protect species that are still alive but in danger of becoming extinct like the dodo from doing so.
1: So is that the reason for doing this, is, is to uh, help stave off the extinction of other species? Like when they start, uh, the numbers start dwindling, you can save some of them by re-engineering them?
7: It's one of the reasons. I think there's definitely motivation for that, but also recreating species that are extinct and being able to re uh, re insert them into the habitats where they no longer live. This also, I think, can have a benefit to the habitats that are around today. So, um, amuriscus, for example, it may be that if we can reengineer something similar to a dodo, remember, it's not going to be a hundred percent like a dodo. We can add this back to the ecosystem and that this will help restabilize an ecosystem that is perhaps still struggling to survive because so many species went extinct, like the dodo, when people first arrived in Mauritius. And this is something that we can extend to other systems, to birds that are struggling to adapt because the pace of change in their climates is faster than evolution can keep up. We can use these tools of genetic engineering to help them evolve more quickly, to help them keep up and give them a chance to survive.
6: And the advancement of these tools and technologies, you know, one, you know, can be added to conservation's toolkit for. Lots of different species and critically endangered species, as well as some of these tools and technologies also apply to humans, right? So we're starting to see how the the power of synthetic biology and tools like CRISPR and others can be used to uh, cure different types of disease states. So a lot of the tools and technologies that we are advancing specifically in our mammalian work with both the woolly mammoth and the Tasmanian tiger that we're also working to de-extinct are advancing tools and technologies that we can even apply to human healthcare.
0: Ben, what kind of a timeline are we looking at for this project, or is there one?
6: Yeah, I mean, so with any big technology project, regardless of whether it's a you know lunar landing or or the extinction, you, know, you know, to the best point, it's, it's it's really hard. Now we've got eighty five scientists plus thirty additional postdocs plus a world renowned scientific advisory board and people like Beth Shapiro and George Church behind us, so I feel like our odds are are about as good as, as you can make them. Uh, we have set a timeline for the our first mammoth calves be uh, uh hopefully born in 2028 given that that's a 22 month gestation versus 30 days in, in in the dodo i think that it's highly likely that uh we could um you know see a a proxy for the dodo before we see that of a mammoth um i think that's very highly likely that we could make that assumption. But I would I will say that, you know, the best point, applying some of the multiplex editing uh, genome technologies that we've developed uh, at, at Colossal for our mammalian work into avian is, is relatively new territory. And also cultivating our, the primordial germ cells, which is part of the process that we are taking in our avian genomics group, is also, you know, uh, and not quite as advanced as some of the other tools that we see in mammalian work. So assuming assume how fast uh, those... Uh, uh, engineering efforts, uh, come to fruition. I think will really drive the timeline, but I do think it's highly likely we could see one before Mammoth.
1: All right. Very quickly, uh, we're talking about Dodo Bird 2.0 here at some point down the road. Let's get weird. Uh, we can re engineer, <laughs> we can re human beings to like, okay, we've got uh, climate change. There's uh, less water in the world. Could you re engineer human beings to require less, uh, uh, water?
6: So they are. See, I'm talking science fiction. It's a great question. We are not. We at Colossal are not focused on uh, uh, applying these tools and technology to humans. Anytime we develop tools or technologies that we have that we think could have a great application to human healthcare, like we did last year, we spun out a computational biology platform. So we'll do that. I will say that. Uh, there is work that's being done uh, worldwide at a couple of different labs on how do we make more drought resistant livestock like cattle and whatnot. There's there's like a huge, you know, one of the things that in, in cattle and livestock that uh, some of them, a lot of them actually have to be dehorned because they hurt themselves in the process or hurt others. So they're actually doing genetic modifications for horn removal. Mm-hmm. So some of these synthetic biology applications are starting to happen. Uh, you know, there's even companies that are looking at genetic modifications. Uh, in leveraging some of these synthetic biology tools uh, to make it where uh, plants can actually capture more carbon. Mm. Uh, and so I do think that the kind of toolkit of 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 these various synthetic biology tools will give us you know uh, more power over kind of our surrounding environments, and we just need to be good stewards of it. I, I don't see, humankind uh engineering us to be more drought tolerant anytime soon but we can that, fly uh, we can fly now yeah yeah I, think, I I think that the world could be pretty weird with synthetic biology and so we just need to be thoughtful and, and balance the trade-off uh with top bioethicists uh, as well all
1: right all right thank you so much guys uh ben lamb CEO and co-founder of colossal Biosciences uh running this project also Beth Shapiro a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz and that's going to do it for today's edition of KNX and Indef- depth